I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora. I'm Dr Victoria Hatton, the British High Commission's Climate Change and COP26 Regional Advisor. Joining us on Tea with the High Commission is the esteemed British environmentalist and writer, Sir Jonathan Porritt. Jonathan is the co-founder of the Sustainable Development Charity Forum for the Future, but he has a long and very impressive history of campaigning on environmental issues. He was formerly Director of Friends of the Earth, Trustee of the WWF UK, as well as Co-Chair of the Green Party of England and Wales from 1980 to 83. Jonathan was also chairman of the UK Sustainable Development Commission until 2009, which saw him providing high-level advice to the government ministers in the UK. He's written 10 books, including his most recent, Hope in Hell, and received a CBE in 2000 for services to environmental protection. Jonathan's deep roots in environmental issues extend to New Zealand as well. He is chair of the Air New Zealand Sustainability Advisory Panel and co-founder and co-patron of the Otiroa Circle, a coalition of public and private sector leaders who want to do no further harm to the environment. And his links go way beyond this. His father, Arthur Porritt, was a Kiwi and the 11th Governor General of New Zealand, and also represented New Zealand in the 1924 Summer Olympics, winning bronze in the 100 metre dash. Jonathan, it's an honour to have you here with us today over Zoom. No mai, hairi mai. Lovely to be with you. Um, and uh, it's always nice to have these connections with New Zealand reconfirmed in that way. They're very important to me still. So let's start off by rewinding 50 odd years, if you don't mind. Do you remember what first inspired you to start championing environmental causes? What was your light bulb moment when you realised this is really what you wanted to do? It was not quite a light bulb, but it was certainly a complete shift in how I saw the world. And that came when I started teaching in 1973, um, having just returned from a long period of time in New Zealand, actually. And I was lucky enough to have 18 months in New Zealand and Australia um, around that time, just before that, at the end of the 60s and early 70s. Um, and that's because dad was out in New Zealand then as governor general. And I was um, able to take on a number of different jobs while I was in New Zealand and Australia. And one of which was plant planting trees. I spent um, a lot of time planting a lot of trees in a little um, tree farm area just uh, north of Auckland at a place called Dairy Flat. And I spent most of that time um, sort of reconnecting or connecting with the land in a way that I'd never done before. And all of that time working on farms in New Zealand, working on sheep farms, big sheep farms in Australia, and doing all this tree planting kind of got me connected into the rhythms of nature in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So that certainly had something to do with it. And then starting teaching in a big London school, that, had the, that was the other element, as it were. And I connected these two and um, here I am today, 50 years later, as you say. So. Fantastic. So is there a porrit forest? <laughs> no, sadly. Uh, it's it's no longer there we um cut it down because i i was planting radiata pine i wasn't sort of doing anything more special than that um but there was a beautiful bit of native bush on the bit of land that i was planting up and because of the wonderful qe2 
um, legal arrangements. This was a protected piece of land that couldn't be touched. And it was called the cathedral. And it was, it, it was uh, I'm hoping it still is an extraordinarily special patch of native bush um, with some wonderful uh, big mature trees, cowries and toteras and, and so on. And it was, um, it was just wonderful. Even as I was covering the rest of this patch of ground with radiata pine, there was this beautiful bit of native bush in the middle, which I could always take refuge in, which was great. <laughs> so, um, so I, I guess then um, we can thank New Zealand for your um, interest in environmentalism in some way then. Definitely. I'm prepared to go along with that. Um, it's, uh, no, it's, it's a serious thing. It's a blessing to be able to connect with the land and it doesn't happen for everybody. It's not something that is the normal part of a person's life. And given that most of the world's population now is urban and becoming more and more urbanized, that level of connectedness with the natural world is becoming the exception, not the rule. So, so in, in terms of environmentalism then, what do you think New Zealand could learn from the UK's environmental policy? And vice versa, do you think that there's anything that the UK could learn from what New Zealand's doing? Honestly, when I look at this, I think both countries have, have had a real problem understanding the degree to which their prosperity depends on the environment. And it's in both of our countries, it's almost as if damage done to the environment was an acceptable price to pay for economic progress. We just got used to the fact that as we developed and grew and all the rest of it, then some damage and often very considerable damage being done to the natural world was okay because it could be justified by the increase in prosperity. We are now going through a really critical time of re-evaluating that trade-off that deal, if you like. And I don't think any one country, I don't think New Zealand has done it better than the UK, and I don't think the UK has done it better than New Zealand, to be honest. We've had terrible damage done to our biodiversity, to our protected areas, to our waterways, to our rivers, to our coastlines. I mean, it's pretty much the same picture as I learned about when I got involved in the um, helping to set up the Aotearoa Circle in New Zealand. And the the essence of the Aotearoa Circle is to say to people, New Zealand's prosperity depends on its natural wealth, on this extraordinary range of, of, of resources, if you like, of ecosystems, of natural wealth, which underpin everything else in the economy. And that's true if you look at soil, if you look at forests, if you look at the, at the special areas that New Zealand has, particularly the marine environment, because this is going to be of more and more importance to New Zealand. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting when you talk about prosperity, um, because one of the, I guess, one of the things that um, I've struggled with in, in my job is, I guess, flipping my thinking about the climate and the environment here um, in terms of Iwi Māori thinking and the sort of the, the indigenous worldview that they put um, sort of the economic drive as being, um, you know, sort of at the bottom of the pile and, the, and putting nature and the environment as the priority. But that is a huge additional strength that New Zealand has to be able to draw on that source of wisdom, mm -hmm. um, going back for a very long way and translating that now into the current condition, the current circumstances that we're living in. And I see that quite a lot through 
my role as uh, chair of Air New Zealand's Sustainability Advisory Panel, because that means we're very involved in tourism and the whole future of tourism in New Zealand. Uh, what does it mean to talk now about sustainable or regenerative tourism? And there's no doubt that a lot of the perspectives now, now coming from iwi in New Zealand with that sense of we've got to do this differently. We can't just go on exploiting the natural world to create more revenues for more tourism businesses. That's having a marked effect on the way people see the future for what is a pretty critical industry for New Zealand. Yeah, so how do you think um, sort of launching a climate emergency or declaring a, a climate emergency will impact um, behaviour? Do you think there are some challenges or opportunities that New Zealand um, faces in sort of, you know, kind of seeing that climate emergency through? Yes, it's, it, it's, it's a really interesting issue at the moment about the, the psychology of change going on here. And, and obviously the whole purpose about declaring a climate emergency is to get it lodged in people's minds that this is not just a normal state of affairs. This is something that has to be addressed with a great deal more urgency than we're addressing at the moment. That's the whole point about declaring a climate emergency. But having declared it, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans unless measures are then taken to essentially address that emergency in very practical terms. If you think about the inspirational leadership of Greta Thunberg and other young climate activists today, what they keep saying is, look, don't go on babbling about how bad the situation is and how much of an emergency is and how much hope you have in young people. We, we don't want to hear any more of that. What we want to hear about is what you're going to do between now and 2030. That's the story. That's the only way in which an emergency declaration turns into an emergency mindset, which turns into emergency measures on the ground. So if you think that um, we need to be thinking about what, what we land in 10 years, you know, by 2030, um, what do you think we need to land by COP26, which is, <laughs> you know, in, in a matter of months and obviously with the UK's leadership as the COP presidency, um, you know, what, what do you think are the most important issues that we can land between now and November? I think things are moving in the right direction. I, I genuinely do believe that. There's a lot more readiness on the part of governments to step up with more ambitious targets. And we've certainly had a, a much more ambitious target for the UK expressed by our Prime Minister recently. The essence though is what I call a whole government approach to this. There's still a tendency to think that climate change is something that you can stick on the Minister for the Environment or maybe you'll get your Ministry of Business getting a bit involved and perhaps transport will get a bit of a look in and then agriculture. But there's no sense of this being a whole government story. If Treasury isn't working to deliver these very ambitious decarbonisation targets, then frankly, they won't be delivered because Treasury underpins the mechanisms available to any government to make stuff happen. So, um, so just kind of linking into some of the work that you've done in the past on um, sort of the emergency mindset, um, when it comes to tackling climate change. Do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated that governments and society have the ability to respond really well to emergencies when they need to? Um, you know, if you think about the impact and the way that the, the whole world has rallied behind some of the COVID-19 emergency, 
Do you think that they can respond to climate change in a similar way? I think that's really important and we do have to land that big picture conclusion, that, that learning, if you like, from COVID-19. Because if you think about the sort of state of play before COVID, there was a, there was a, a sense that government really wasn't as important as it used to be in the, in the old days, that the market did everything. Well, COVID-19 has taught us that the market is not much good at sorting out a global pandemic, frankly. It has been totally clear from the start that this depended on very good concerted government intervention from the beginning. And those governments that haven't quite understood that, and let's be honest, there are a number of them around the world where many people are still going through a hellish time as a consequence of COVID-19, um, have paid a much heavier price than those where governments stepped up, got going, used the levers of the government, of the state, if you like. And that's the fascinating thing about what Joe Biden is doing, unapologetically saying, when we talk about the government, we're talking about us, we're talking about the citizens of the USA, and we are going to mobilize the resources of the citizens of the USA via the government. And it's fascinating to watch that shift. So for me, if we can bank that lesson and turn it then to the ways in which we need to respond to the climate emergency, that will be enormously helpful. The problem we face is, is what's often been referred to as the <coughs> tragedy of the horizon. We had to we had to mobilize these massive interventions to deal with the COVID crisis. People don't feel that the climate crisis commands quite such a level of urgent attention. And that means people keep pushing it out to the distant horizon. We've got to bring it right into people's minds here and now, because that's what's necessary. I like the, um, I like the idea of watching the, watching the ship and seeing how the US tackles climate change now that it's back in the Paris Agreement. But um, what do you think the UK can do to foster that global climate action? It's a really big, big thing for our country to get this right. Um, the job has been made a great deal easier, I have to say, by <clears throat> the arrival of Joe Biden in the White House. And Joe Biden and his climate um, ambassador, John Kerry, is playing an extremely active role working closely with the UK and Italian governments who share the presidency of COP26 to push things along uh, much further um, on the international stage. There are two absolutely critical things, Victoria, that have to happen. The first is climate finance. Western governments have been promising large sums of money for poorer countries, for developing and emerging countries to help them deal with the climate impacts they're already suffering from and then adapt their economies to take account of, <clears throat> excuse me, to take account of a very different world. And the second thing, which is equally important, is the whole issue about forestry. Um, it is madness that we're still seeing a vast uh, amount of deforestation going on in the world today. It's a major contributor still to emissions of greenhouse gases. We know, we know what needs to be done. We have to keep those forests intact and we have to find a way of providing or ensuring that there is some economic rationale for that, for those countries that think, perhaps understandably, that one of the best ways of dealing with poverty is to go on converting their forests into a farmland or whatever else it might be. These are two huge issues that have hung over the negotiations at these climate conferences for, well, going right back to the time when the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed into being in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And I was there and I saw it happen. 
And those two issues were raised at that time. <laughs> and honestly, nearly 25, well, however much further, nearly 30 years on from that point, we still not dealt with either of those two issues. It's crazy. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The whole, the whole idea that um, nature is worth more dead than it is alive. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's a real problem still. Real yeah. problem. And we, need, we definitely need to flip that thinking away to revalue that you know nature and biodiversity um and give it the the credence that it actually deserves um mm. and i think that there is a, a significant role if you think about the desgupta review as well that the uk has led yeah. um which is looking at the economics of nature and um and how do you put a price on it and what that price is um and how that and how you can weigh that up from a forestry or you know a piece of agriculture land um and what that value looks like yeah, absolutely. And that actually is exactly what the Aotearoa Circle in New Zealand is seeking to do, bringing together, you know, the top people from government and top people from business to understand and reevaluate, as you put it, the absolutely critical importance of the natural capital on which we depend. And it sounds odd that we should have to do that, but that's been disregarded for so many decades to be honest that we've got to put that back at the heart of the decision making in every government department and every private sector business so you've described yourself before as an optimist um but i know from personal experience and um, that sometimes climate change can feel insurmountable um and it's exhausting it's like there's so much to do that you don't know where to start and um, the problem is enormous. You've been dealing with um, environmentalism and climate change for such a long time, but you keep going. You know, how do you keep going? What motivates you to keep going, to wake up the following day and to get back straight back into it? I guess I'm lucky in that I have a predisposition to look to the upside of things rather than the downside of things. I love people who have positive energy and one of the things that keeps me going is that the joy of being a solutions focused greenie which is how I would describe myself is I spend a huge amount of time in in joint initiatives and meetings with people who are just bristling with enthusiasm to make the solutions work and it's very hard you, you come out of those meetings and think okay we know this can be done here's the evidence that it's doable here are the people who want to make it happen and for me, the latest infusion of reasons to be hopeful, as it were, has come from young people. I mean, from 2019, end of 2018, 2019 onwards, watching young people now step into this space and express themselves so articulately and with such passion to the older generations and just say, look, this isn't acceptable. You can't go on enjoying a particular way of life for yourselves today if the price of that is that we have no stable climate we have no environment that we can count on that's just not acceptable and i am loving that new energy from young campaigners today it's it's difficult for politicians to just push that away as they're tempted to do with with a lot of campaigners and i've always been able to draw on those sources of new energy and the, the power to make good ideas work well for the whole of humankind. So on the subject of inspiration, um, who has inspired you or who currently inspires you? I was lucky. I encountered the writing of Rachel Carson 
and Silent Spring uh, in 1972. And that was one of the first books I ever read. And honestly, it was an eye-opener for me. And her life was an eye-opener as this incredibly courageous um, scientist who had to put up with appalling attempts by the chemicals industry at the time to suppress her work and to make light of what she was doing. And she was from a, from a sort of, you know, learning from afar. She was a critically important person for me. Politically, I learned a lot from the amazingly charismatic German politician called Petra Kelly, who was one of the first Green Party um, representatives in the German parliament. And she was just the most breathtakingly inspirational uh, politician that I've, I've ever, and I got to know her really well. And that was a great thing in my early days in the Green Party, and that was terrific. Um, latterly, there are so many amazing people, but I have a very soft spot indeed for Wangari Matai, the Kenyan Nobel Peace Prize winner, who I worked with back in the 1980s when she was setting up the Green Belt Movement in Kenya. And her life and her work, honestly, if anyone wants just a quick glance at what it, it what a life of service to people, to peace, to the environment, to women's issues, because each of those three women I've just mentioned were, were so strong in, in their advocacy on behalf of a, a world more balanced when it comes to men and women. And understanding that that's a critical part of why things go wrong so often today, if we don't sort that stuff out, then we're gonna to continue to make a lot of mistakes. So I've had so many brilliant people who, from whom I've learned masses over the years, just an incredible part of my, my learning. And it's wonderful that the three people that have inspired you most are all women too. That's uh, true. And honestly, if I look at the green movement today, the power of, of, that women bring to bear on these issues is enormously important. Um, we have one wonderful inspirational MP for the Green Party here in the UK, Caroline Lucas. And honestly, it's a, a joy when you see a politician fully enabled by our system to get out there and make things happen on behalf of their constituents and the wider interests of society and speak constantly with this passion and integrity. It's, it's what we want all our politicians to be. So moving away from climate change, just briefly, when were you last in New Zealand? And um, what did you enjoy doing most while you were here? I was last in New Zealand more than a year ago now. So I was out for a meeting of the Air New Zealand advisory panel in March, um, end of February, March last year. I got out of New Zealand just in time um, came back to the UK and lockdown kicked in a week after that. Um, and when we were out, for, when I was out for that visit, it was, a, it was a, a, just a fantastic time that I had. I was able to see family, which is always wonderful because I've still got family out in um, New Zealand. Is there, um, is there any particular, um, you know, place that you have a soft spot for here? I've been lucky. I have done a lot of traveling around in New Zealand um, and seen some um, amazing places. I do have a soft spot for Fjordland. It is a, a place of intense beauty and and it always just gives me that that sort of regrounding opportunity. I haven't been back to to a visit for there for quite a long time. But one place I have to mention my dad's hometown. He was born in Fonganui and um, I do go there 
you know, occasionally. I, again, I haven't been for quite a while, but I have a bit of a soft spot for that because he was always a diary writer. And I've got his diaries from the time when he was um, in Whanganui, right back in, from written from 1911 onwards. He was a rather cursory diary writer, I have to say. He didn't, he didn't, he, it was, they were pretty brief entries, but you can still recognize some of the things that he was talking about in his hometown. Wow, what a what an amazing um, history to have as as part of yeah. you know, your record record of him. Um, fantastic. So, lastly, um, Jonathan, um, you are an incredibly optimistic man. Um, but what is it that's currently giving you the reason to be cheerful? At long last, I honestly think people have got the idea that we're not on a very sensible path at the moment. I really do believe that. There are not many places now where you encounter outright opposition or apathy. Even if you look at the world's capital markets, the investment community, you look at what's happening in most of the world's big professions, you look at most big businesses today, you look at civil society, you look at governments gradually grinding into action. If you look around and you sort of take account of that, and then you think of the role of major faith groups and religions and so on and so forth. There is definitely a gathering of, of people coming together to demand a very different kind of change than anything that we've seen in the past. So I am hugely upbeat about that. I, I call it the great awakening. There is a sense now in every, every part of our lives that we haven't done a very good job up until now. We need to do it better and we need to do it better fast. That's essentially what's happening. Fantastic. Well, that's, that concludes the questions, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to um, have a conversation with you about this. It's great. Uh, oh, I it's, you do. it's incredible. I feel very privileged, very honoured. <laughs> lovely. That's lovely. Thanks well, enjoy the rest of your day, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.